الجزيرة بودكاست Days after powerful earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria, the death toll continues to rise. Rescue crews are finding fewer survivors under the rubble, but there is still hope. But what impact is this disaster having on the emergency workers there on the ground? I'm Nastasia Tain. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests from Jinderis in Syria is Droma Al-Qasem. He's an aid worker and also unfortunately lost his uncle and seven family members in these earthquakes. From London, we have Noel McDermott. He's a psychotherapist who treats people suffering trauma. And from Adiaman in Turkey is Muaz Mustafa. He's the executive director of the Syrian Emergency Task Force. A warm welcome to you all. And I cannot thank you enough for sparing the time to join us here on Al Jazeera. I know it's an incredibly busy time for all of you. Now, we've been hearing about some really, really incredible rescues that have taken place over the last few days, that the last one was baby Aya in Jinderis. So let me start with you, Joma. How are you doing? Thank you. Um, since the third day of the earthquake, me and my organization, most of the team crossed the border from Turkey towards Jindera, Syria. Uh, we are specifically putting most of our weight in these towns around Afrin because it was one of the most impacted uh, areas that was hit by the earthquake. I, I, I can say like we sleep like only a few hours per, per day. Day and night, we are continuing our time to try to help the people with all our capacities. So, so far, we are trying to, to, to help, but we feel always like we're disabled. We are having a very few resources, but the need is like really tremendous. And you feel like you are unable or disabled to, to help the people. This is the most thing that actually uh, makes us so nervous, so stressful. And this disaster, like, that caused everyone impacted by it, the loss of relatives, loss of, of kids, etc. It, it made us like really overexhausted and consumed. Joma, that sounds incredibly, incredibly difficult. And you have my condolences as well. I'm very sorry to have heard about your family too. How are you personally doing? You've spoken there about some of the, the bigger challenges that everyone is, is facing. How are you personally coping right now? The first uh, hours of the earthquake, I tried to save my family back in Gaza and Turkey. Then I put my wife and my kids near my brother's house in a safer place. They stayed in a mosque and then they moved to a camp. And then I moved all the way here to, to Syria to help assist. Um, I don't know, you feel nipt- like it's, you feel you are nymphatized. Don't feel what you feel. I don't know how to express. But the shock, it's like a resurrection day. Like the hand, the earth shake, the cracks made all of that destruction. And everyone is mourning their beloved ones. Like it, it's more or less a resurrection day. Uh, it's like a calamity. Everyone is like walking without logically absorbing or being mm. able to absorb what happened. So people are like literally out of their mind, unconscious. That's what we are in, because till now, people didn't understand the shock and the aftermath is to come. Of course. Uh, Muaz, you're in Turkey, where obviously a huge number of people are also grappling with some of the, the same shock that we're hearing about 
there from Joma. Uh, your, I believe your organization is involved with distributing aid at the moment. How are the communities that you're meeting, how are people there holding up? Well, um, people are amazingly resilient, first mm. of all, because, you know, what they have gone through, I, I can't imagine just, you know, I'm just looking at, at, at the the post-earthquake, you know, the locations. I was in Gaziantep. I was yesterday in Jinderis with Al Jazeera's uh, Zaina Khudr uh, and other Western journalists. Uh, and today I'm in uh, Adi Aman, and I just... Uh, just came here from touring the city center of Adiyam, and it looks like they are in in literally a war zone. Uh, they had gone through, you know, multiple bombardments across the city, uh, entire streets, everything is down. And I spent some time both in Syria with, you know, victims of the earthquake that were being treated at the hospital, as well as uh, the the folks that are already internally displaced. Um, and they are, the ones in Syria are wondering where the world is. Mm -hmm. And they're wondering why these wide open border crossings with paved roads, wide open, just like you're driving in London or Doha or Washington, D.C., uh, that the only line of cars going into Syria are ambulances, not ambulances that are going in to, to help save people. They're ambulances carrying Syrian refugees that have lost their lives in Turkey uh, and are now uh, going back to be buried in their homeland. But everyone I spoke with uh, is stronger than, than anyone I know in, in the world, uh, especially the Syrians who have suffered 12 years of the worst crimes of the 21st century at the hands of Assad, Russia and Iran, and now dealing with an earthquake where Russia and Assad continue to block cross-border aid uh, from the north, uh, which is a few kilometers from places like Jinderis, uh, where Jamaa is and where I was yesterday. Uh, as you've spoken about resilience here, is there anger too? Are, are people really frustrated about what's happened? Absolutely. I mean, if there is a, a, a big fire, uh, let's say, uh, in, in, in a city in, in Europe or the United States, you'll see ambulances and you'll see, you know, uh, police and you'll see cars and things like that. You don't see anything on the borders like there's no aid coming in and people are angry because not only have they been left alone to be bombarded, whether it's chemical weapons or barrel bombs and all of that by Assad, Russia and Iran. They are now left alone by the International Committee and the United Nations. And people are really, really angry over the fact that the U.N. is asking permission of Bashar al-Assad, who blocks aid and bombs mm -hmm. these people in order to bring in aid from uh, the, from Turkey. Yeah. The fact is, I don't know in the history of the United Nations that a major historic of historic proportions earthquake that's so devastating that nine days a week in uh, into it, the United Nations has sent nothing. So people are rightfully angry because the world continues to abandon them 12 years on uh, from the beginning of their evolution. No, let me bring you in here because we've heard a number of very, very powerful mm -hmm. words. Shock anger, resilience too, but also numbness. Presumably none of this is coming as a surprise to you. No, no. And the numbing or the disassociated state is a very typical initial trauma response. For people who've not experienced trauma, maybe they've experienced the death of a loved one. And often when you experience the death of a loved one, you may go into a numbed out state initially. Um, simply because it's not possible to process and experience the emotions. And also because there are things to be done. Your first guest described that there's, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of trying to save lives, 
initially find survivors and then sort out uh, what's needed to maintain life and living and you said in your interruption getting schools up and running and I can't tell you how important that is for children so there literally isn't time for that stuff there isn't there's a survival space now that people go into Uh, and there will be other feelings of course there'll be anger there will be uh, all sorts of very strong emotions but but that sort of numbing unreal sense of a I, I can't process this is is very familiar um, and people will come through that um, and then begin to process the sort of um, the emotional content of these things which is pretty hor- horrific what they're, they're going to be processing in terms of um, the loss of there's so many losses going on okay. and and your second guest um, pointed out that there's been ongoing losses uh, in Syria so this compounds it goes on and on and on uh, and becomes quite terrific and I think one more point I would say is that I think you'll get first guest um, apologies gentlemen but I didn't your names didn't go into my brain that's the way my brain is unfortunately so I'm going to refer to you as guests um, that the first gentleman was talking about as a frontline first responder who's also having to deal with being in the event and again that's very typical that the first responders also have their own losses and experiences their own concerns about family getting them to safety and then have to deal with the fact that infrastructure has stopped existing Mm. it's gone the sort of things that you would rely on, the ambulances, the roads, they just don't exist anymore. They're not there. And, and so the sort of things that you might have trained to have in place so that you can help people and save people have just disappeared. And then you're left as um, as a professional with this sort of, of impact, impotent sense of overwhelm that you can't do what you know you should be doing. And, and all of that sort of builds and compounds and it's it's awful for people on the ground no, absolutely dreadful you you just said the word impotence there and, and that goes back to something that Joma was talking about a sense of helplessness almost Joma especially yes. this many days on after the quakes can you tell us a little bit I, I can see the rubble there around you how people are dealing now with search and rescue mm. are people still looking for people is there still hope if you allow me, I would sh- change my camera position to show the where I'm standing here next to these heaps of rubble in the middle of one of the major streets in this town. This town used to be only 18,000 population before the war, but now it's over 110,000. So you can imagine how many IDPs already have been residing here. Unfortunately, heaps of rubble behind me, as you see, are... Uh, there are still corpses and unsaved bodies inside that the white helmets and other rescue search teams trying to help. But since the first, there was no gear, only shovels and small hammers that people tried to save people from under tons of cement, damaged structures, metal roots, and etc. So you can see the scale of, of, the, uh, of the damage that already people have suffered from lack of shelter, displacement, and being stiffed in northwest of Syria in a small geography. So we as aid workers, we were always hoping for making zero tents, zero camps, at least for people to to have a decent shelter or dignified one to live in. But now this catastrophe, not only the crumbled houses, there are a lot of houses that are inhabitable. You see behind me like streets 
of the, the town have like been entirely wiped out of the, of the, of the map. So the crisis is really great. And uh, unfortunately, the shelter crises and other needs of, mm. of the people will be increased for a longer time. So unfortunately, we feel this despair because Syria is again, the Syrian people being let down, disappointed by the, by the really weak response. I met today uh, a delegation from UN in Turkey who are responsible of, of the uh, response in northwest Syria, and they apologize. But this apology mm. doesn't make anything. We understand the old bureaucracy working in. We understand the war zone. Syria, Syria is not anymore, unfortunately, on the front line or front pages of the news because it's not a priority for the international community. But we, you, we have a humane feelings. We have a humanity and moral obligation for all countries to come and help. These people will be alone in the winter, in the cold. No countries, I mean like big countries, not only small NGOs or UN here and there to come and help. The UN DAC have came to Turkey, which is the disaster assessment committee, mm -hmm. but they never visited here. There is a small local council that's only a couple of uh, of dozen of people who are managing this disaster that even countries cannot uh, come help. Even in Turkey, there was over mm -hmm. 80 or 70 countries that sent rescue, professional rescue teams with gears, with etc. But here, we, we, we unfortunately, we were... Joma, I hear your anger. I want to ask Moaz a little about how slow the aid response has been as well, because you, you spoke about the anger that you were seeing from people, especially across the border in Syria. I want to understand, is that compounding the trauma that people have already had to live through? It's yes. not just compounding the trauma. Uh, people have uh, are living through it is killing them the lack of aid the slowness of aid and the lack of aid is killing people the fact is people screamed the first day they cried and weeped under rubble yelling for their loved ones who were just outside waiting for their turn at a bulldozer or an excavator driver because there's not nobody sent heavy machinery mm. into syria third day fourth day fifth day sixth day until you hear the whimpering of your own family members and loved ones underneath the rubble die out and you know now that they're dead when you're just scrambling whether as Jama said using shovels and hammers and whatever you can and helplessly you know not getting anywhere or waiting for your turn um we have a school for orphans in in in, in northern syria called the wisdom house supported by american communities and two of our former students, um, you know, alongside their extended family were in Jindaris. They all died. But their relative was outside waiting for their turn at a, at a bulldozer driver. And by the time that happened, uh, all nine family members were brought out dead. So the slowness of aid is, is, is killing people. And, and the fact that the UN, they, they must, they, the United Nations is, believes that Bashar al-Assad is the secretary general. They've given full sovereignty to him and they're asking for his permission to open border points that he doesn't control physically in reality. Mm. And that further legitimizes him. And he waited a week. He waited more than a week. He waited for everyone to die to then say, maybe you can use another border crossing for three months. This is a shame on the legacy of the United Nations. And it's a shame on the legacy of European and Western and frankly, even Arab countries that have sent planes to Damascus, a, a regime known to steal aid that hasn't sent even a tiny percentage of that aid to, to regime-held areas that, that experienced some of the earthquake, 
but the but the places in Syria that were the hardest hit have received nothing. The slowness of aid is not just traumatizing them; it's literally murdering them. Uh, Noel, I, I want to bring you in here again because we're yeah. we're hearing about the trauma and also the, the physical challenges that people are having to live through right now. Obviously, there's just not a lot of places for people to sleep, not a lot of food for people to eat. How does this moment, the how people deal with the aftermath, how does that contribute to how people are going to deal with processing all of what's happened going it, forward? It, it's hugely disruptive. I mean, there's a number of things that will take place. I mean, um, both your guests are describing um, superbly um, some of the issues that the survivors will be left with. And um, there's a thing called survivor's guilt, for example, which is a um, really, really difficult thing. Why did I survive when my family didn't? Um, th there's also issues about, um, you know, people trying their best and listening and failing to rescue their loved ones. Um, and, and they will be left with that memory for the rest of their life. And they will be hearing those voices going on and on again and, and berating themselves for not doing better. Uh, and it's true, it's the world that needs to do better, not those individuals. But that doesn't help you when you're an individual who's listened to your child dying under rubble. It, it doesn't help you that there's a political context. And so we need to think about that individual as well. Uh, and the lack of aid does this, because one of the, one of the things that's most helpful initially uh, in terms of helping people cope with uh, huge events like this, disastrous events like this, and I've worked with th literally thousands of people. I was uh, worked a lot with forced migrants in the UK, people who've been through natural disasters as well as wars, etc. Uh, and and there's this thing about trying to get back to some semblance of normality mm. as as quickly as possible, which is not you can't get to normal in this situation. But what you can do is get to living a life routine. Um, so that people are getting up, looking after their kids. It might be in a tent initially and then in some other um, accommodation later on. But you want that process to start as soon as possible. You want the schools to be up and running as soon as possible. Again, there might be makeshift tents to start with, but they go back to... But if you haven't got that basic level of infrastructure to begin that basic transition for the survivors to get back to life uh, and get some sense of... Um, they're moving beyond the immediate threat into some sense of safety. That's a real problem um, further down the line for those people in terms of their capacity to be resilient. Of the course. word resilient was used earlier on. And yes, there's a lot of resilience going on. And resilience just means the uh, strength of your connections to other human beings. Um, but that will break. Uh, unless we get in there and provide these basic resources to people so that they can begin to process. Well, when we you don't say need resilient, need to turn. I want to go back to, yeah. to Joma and Jenderis because I'm, I'm seeing so much resilience from the community there. So many people who've lost their own family members like yourself and you're trying to help other people in your community. Let, let me ask you a personal question, if that's all right, Joma. Because I'm curious about what yeah. you personally would like to see. We've talked about infrastructure, uh, schools, shelter, all of that. But in terms of your own support, in terms of feeling like you're being listened to, feeling like your family is going to be supported in the future, what are you looking for? What would you like? The international community have deserted the Syrian people for years that have passed. Since the 
normal barrels that Assad regime was bombing over the people and people ran away for safety, etc. All of these horrifics that they have lived. And that was the last thing they need is the earthquake that destroyed the one percent of power or energy that, that was left for the people. And now we are over consumed. So the need is really big. People need in the first hand to have a proper shelter, a decent one, houses or pre, uh, prefabricated containers or any kind of, of, of decent, dignified shelter, not these tents that doesn't protect any, anyone either in, in, in heat and summer or like in cold and winter. At the same time, people need to have some normalization of life. When we speak about resilience, People already, they are saving their properties, the markets, the economy, everything is really shaking and there is a lot of ups and downs. The lack of stability makes our life like always, you know, uh, you are always threatened by any kind of catastrophe, whether national or human made. So unfortunately, we are, how to say, habituated to unhabitual stuff. We, the abnormal is becoming normal. So this kind of agitation every student is living, this must stop international community, countries, and all actors and players should have, should sit accountable and have their own responsibility towards these people. There are hundreds of thousands of, of, of people across a small 40 by 60 kilometer, and in, in Idlib alone, you have over 4.5 million people living in there. Above, above 70% of this population are already IDPs, who some of them we have met through our humanitarian work. For the 12th time together, they are being displaced. This is not the life that, that uh, mm. Syrians deserve. So really like we feel always being deserted and, and the aid is being politicized. So we mm. should, the UN and others who are like responsible for making all this efforts to go to the right place of the right people and really provide the right help in its place. Even now, we, if we are providing thousands of tents, it's not a dur durable situation, mm -hmm. it's not a solution. It's not a permanent one, then like next summer we'll have some camps being flooded in the winter, some other ca catastrophes destroying people, and then again we'll keep moving. This is not what what we need. We need like a more kind of uh, permanent solutions. Let houses, me, shelters. Let me ask Muaz about that, because I know you've been dealing with some of this gonna... as well. Yeah, no, I just wanted to jump in as he was speaking and saying, first of all, he's absolutely right. Like, we need a lot of help right now, but this to recover from this, it's it's going to be months, if not years. And the mm -hmm. fact is that the United Nations remains beholden to the Assad regime, um, despite the fact that, according to legal experts, including Ambassador Stephen Rapp and others, you don't need a Security Council resolution to have that cross-border aid from, from the North. So either there is a mechanism outside of the United Nations that utilizes the multiple, at least four and probably more, border crossings that are wide open from the mm -hmm. north to these hardest hit areas, um, or the United Nations settles the cross-border question today and indefinitely. But these six months, one border, or three yes. months, one border things that we're begging from the Assad regime, not only are they coming at concessions to the Assad regime, it's legitimizing the war criminal that initially displaced these five million people to the northwest. Yes. When I was in Jinderis just a few hours ago, People were from Homs and Hama and Aleppo. You know, it's hard to even figure out that the, the numbers of it's dead horror, is way horror. lower because people are from all over the place. Yes. So uh, the fact is there needs to be cross-border aid from the north 
and the world need to, needs to show up. The fact Mouaz. that the only cars going into Syria are ambulances of dead people is unacceptable. Muaz, I understand. I do also not want to forget about what's happening on the other side of the border into Kiev because this is a hugely, profoundly traumatic event for millions of people on both sides of that border. And I'm wondering whether, with the aid rollout that you were seeing, is psychosocial aspects of this being even discussed because lots of people are going to be processing a huge amount of trauma for many years to come. Is that being discussed? Are those provisions being made in terms of trying to help people right now and, and going forward? So I, I've been driving around Adi Amman all day today since the morning. Uh, it, it really looks like it's like the aftermath of, 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 of a major war zone. Um, you, you, you see insane destruction. You see you know, I mean, I, I, one thing that, that caught me is all these, you know, sometimes there'll be clocks on the wall and, 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 they're, and they're still stuck at like 4.20 a.m., you know, when, whenever the clock mm. stopped working after the whole house fell down. Um, I went into some of the tents here in Adi Amman and, uh, and, and was sitting down with the member, you know, these families, and each one had lost so many people. People that were rich in the morning became poor and homeless in, in, in a matter of, of minutes. Uh, and that is just across the board. And, and I, right now, I, you know, the efforts have been focused on getting them in tents, providing them aid, uh, clearing up some roads to try to get to the bodies of who knows the countless that remain there. Uh, but, you know, psychosocial, I, I haven't seen some of that support right away. I hope that that happens. I hope that happens with the aid of international community that needs to come and support Turkey yeah, as it's now trying to help both its own people that have gone through a disastrous catastrophe and the Syrians. Uh, right across their border and the many refugees that are there. But the, the need is so great, even in Turkey, uh, that there is, I don't know if people have gotten to the stage of thinking of the need for this, you know, therapy, that the trauma that people have gone through, the psychosocial, you know, uh, social support that they desperately, and emotional support that they desperately need. Mm. I haven't seen that yet. I, you know, as the gentleman from, yeah. uh, your guest from London was mentioning, I see a lot of people that are in that numb state as well, you know. You, the guy, you know, and, and every once in a while, it's been not some people will break days. down as they're describing their children. Indeed, and yeah. so many people are really just trying to get by day to day, as we were hearing from, from Joma there too. I'm afraid we'll have to leave our discussion there for now, and I'm going to let you all get back to the very important work that you are doing. I, I can't thank you enough for joining us here on Al Jazeera, and I, I really want to wish you all the best for all the work that you're doing and also with your families. Joma, again, we're very, very sorry for your loss and, and you have all of our thoughts and best wishes. Well, this episode was produced by Ophelia Johnson, Katia Lopez-Hodoyan, Mohamed Salman, Fungi Nguyen and Paul Taylor. Studio Sound was by Sentel Marimutsu and the programme was edited by Andre Oosthuizen, Lin Nguyen and Joe DeFries. Do be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every one of our episodes. Thanks for listening and tune in on Thursday for our next one.